And so now oh there God. are four cats in my house. It's too many cats. <laughs> so I apologize for the feline shenanigans that are going on. No, you're fine. I love it. That's great. Oh. How many? Four? Four. Two That's are mine and two are hers. Temporary. Oh. Hopefully. You, think <laughs> you, would, you, you would have thought that you would have learned with uh, as many kids as you had. It's all these You know? It's too many kids. It's too many cats, but you do what you have to do. That's <laughs> yep. The mountain is there. Climb it. You have no choice. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Grace Pratt the podcast production editor, and I have four of my five co-hosts joining us today. So we have a great group and a great topic. We're going to be talking about who are your besties? Who are you working, collaborating with closely in integrated care? But before we get to that, I'm going to start with our icebreaker question and let everyone introduce themselves so you can hear some voices and get to know all of us a little bit better. You know, what got me thinking about this was that I was at a conference in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and my childhood best friend from East Texas lives in Chicago now. And so every year annually, when I go up to this conference in Chicago, we get dinner and catch up on life. And we have not lived in the same town since I was 10. So it's been number of years since then. Um, but we still have that connection that you just get from that childhood best friend. And so um, I was wondering, as you're introducing yourselves, if you'd tell us a little bit about who was that best friend for you and what was something you loved about him. I'm going to go around the circle on my screen. And so clockwise for me is Bridget. All right. So my name is Bridget Beachy, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade, but I work as a BHC and director in the state of Washington at FQHC, do some consulting and some other stuff for fun. You can find me on YouTube and other venues. As far as what I liked about my best friend, there's actually two that were in the neighborhood. And uh, I remember a lot of bike riding and to be able to get to three of our houses. And there was also a lot of big hills. So I remember, you know, taking the bike down those hills. And so a lot of play, like basketball, softball, bikes, video games, and um, I wrote down the word fun because uh, we just had oh sleepovers. We just had all the really classic, you know, um, mid mid nineties activities. Uh, you know, Nintendo, and uh, then when Sega came out, that was like a huge deal. So yeah, fun. I love it. So much fun. Uh, then next we have Jen. Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Thomas. I'm a family medicine provider at Morris Hospital, um, medical director of integrated behavioral health there. So um, kind of juggling the uh, clinical and admin role um, in my current job. But um, yeah, thinking back to childhood besties. So there was a, a pot of four of us. Um, and we're really blessed to say we're still really good friends today. Um, in fact, we get together like once or twice a year and our kids are all in that like middle school and high school. So it's cool to get the whole crew together and see everybody in the next generation um, hanging out. But when I think back to my time with Lindsay Ann and Jen, um, I think of Lindsay's house. So she had this really big, beautiful house with a huge um, front yard. And like the front yard was kind of our sacred space where we'd go have a campfire. Um, we'd just go out and talk uh, <laughs> late into the night. Sometimes we'd sneak up onto our roof and look at the stars. But Lindsay's house was kind of that um, little haven of, um, you know, safe space and time to think and be young and dream about the future. So yeah, those, those are my core besties from growing up and still, still tight to this day. <laughs> Love that. And we have Neftali. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Neftali Serrano or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, also a psychologist, also a lifelong career in uh, lifelong. That's kind of weird. I wasn't doing this when I was three years old. Um, you know, professional lifelong career in primary care. So, you know what, what's funny is when you ask the icebreaker question, well, first of all, I should say just by commentary, I'm getting like Stranger Things vibes here as I hear people talk about their childhoods, uh, which is awesome. I love that little gang in Stranger Things. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Um, 
but I I thought of my childhood friend and I immediately thought of a of a like a guilty uh, feeling I had because um, I was really close to my childhood friend and and but we lived in in two different neighborhoods and so I lived in one neighborhood in New York and he lived in a uh, so you could say a rougher part of New York City and um, one time and I forget how old we were, we were probably high school aged he gave me a, a mountain bike like just out of the blue he was just like I'm just giving you mountain bikes and and <laughs> My first thought was, <laughs> it's so bad. I feel I feel bad about it even to today. I was like, did you did you steal this bike? Like, why are, why are you giving me this mountain bike? You know, did you steal this? You know, <laughs> and I felt so bad for thinking of thinking that about him. And I actually I told him that I said, you know, did you is this legit here? You know, this is back in the day when stealing bikes was a big thing in New York City. So uh, yeah, it's funny that that memory came up. I mean, we, we, you know, he he really didn't get very offended, and he's like, no, 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 I didn't steal it. It's so legit, you know. Just you know, get it. I got it for free or whatever. I don't even remember what the reason was, but anyway, Caesar, if you're out there listening, I know you're not listening, but um, I, I'm sorry, man. I, I shouldn't have thought the worst of you there. Sometimes best friends can surprise us. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we have Deepu. All right. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you're listening to our little gang here. Uh, my name is Deepu George, and I am an associate professor in family medicine and primary care behavioral health provider here and uh, doing everything related to integrated care at UT Rio Grande Valley in McAllen, Texas. Jen, good to see you because I think it's our first uh, yes. episode together. Good to see um, you. Yeah. So childhood. So um, I grew up, I'm, my family moved every three years of my life. So I have, I was trying to think of like, where did I have the most impact? And the most impact that I had was when I moved to the US, this is 1994. And I was about to enter seventh grade. And I just want to kind of put some more context there. I did not speak a lick of English when I moved here in seventh grade. And that of four years were really tough. And they were really great. And I had these uh, four friends at church who I'm going to actually fly out to Houston tonight to see them and hang out with them from one of their sister's wedding. Um, I think to Naftali's point, not that I doubted my friends at that point, but they're very generous and um, they're very welcoming because I don't know if you guys know the fresh off the boat feeling when you don't know the contextual cultural cues and you're kind of saying all kinds of things that are funny to everybody else but you don't know you're being made fun of yeah. all of that kind of stuff but these four friends uh we stuck together and then after I moved back to India you know we didn't keep in touch because India and U.S. kind of far away uh but then when I came back in 07 uh it was as if I never left and so um they're the ones that I think about love that um as I said at the top of the show, I'm Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Integra's Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I had a few, kind of like you guys, a few kids in my neighborhood that we ran around with. And, you know, my my best bestie that I saw in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, she lived four houses down from me. And in between our two houses, one of the lots was empty. And so we had lots of adventures in that empty lot. We both loved to read and we would trade a lot of books back and forth and and some of my favorite books I read as a child were her books that she shared with me. And then we had another friend whose mom had a deep freeze in the garage that always had big red popsicles in it. And I don't know if big red like happened anywhere else. It was a big deal in Texas for sure. And so there are these like big cherry, it's like cherry, but not exactly cherry, like cola kind of flavored popsicles and so when I think about those summer days running around in Texas heat yeah. I think about those big red popsicles very good nice <laughs> yeah so one of those uh real sensory memories for me uh well thank you everyone for sharing those I think there's so many threads that we can pull through in a few minutes when we're talking about those close relationships for us professionally and who we're collaborating with in terms of you know, the safety and the fun and the connection there. But before we get to that, we do have a few pieces of news to discuss.
Yes. Uh, the biggest news, of course, is that in a month, you all will be hearing us um, as we are live at our annual conference in Boise, Woo! Idaho. So it's going to be uh, fantastic and fun for those of you who are listening and uh, can't be there with us in Boise. You'll get a feel for what it's like. Um, we'll be there hashing things out. Our our topic next time, just to tease you, is going to be uh, centered on policy and integrated care. And we're going to have a guest podcaster, Marcy Nielsen. Um, she's awesome. She's a, a board member. She's really funny. We'll probably... Well, no, we don't have to. We don't have to censor her because this is a podcast. Even though it's live, we we have. She she is very irreverent. Um, she she has a little bit of a potty mouth, um, but she's awesome. Uh, just understands the world of policy, understands the world of kind of moving things forward from a regulatory standpoint. Has made tremendous contributions to CFHA, so it's going to be a fun fun time uh, at the podcast. If you're there live or if you are listening next. So if uh, you're like last minute, hey. I want to get to Boise. You're welcome to come. Integratedcareconference.com is where you would get your uh, tickets to go. So that's conference news. Other news here, really actually pretty like flooring news. Uh, this kind of stuff goes under the radar unless you're sort of integrated care nerds like us here at CFHA. But um, I can tell you that I've never had, I've never seen something as directly on target and supportive of integrated care in the United States ever in my career at the highest levels of government than what I read this past week. Uh, there's a brief, and we'll put the link in the bio here. Uh, it's an issue brief put out by the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, one of these other government acronyms, ASPE. Um, but basically, it's coming from the Department of Health and Human Services. And this is what it says. It's HHS advances the president's strategy to address our national mental health crisis through integration. Now that's really, really crucial for you to kind of hear about, right? So again, this is the president's strategy. So this is at the highest levels of the executive branch going through operationally. This is what, what's going to drive funding. This is what's going to drive priorities through HHS, which is the biggest department related to um, health in the United States. And they're addressing they're seeking to address the national mental health crisis through integration, right? There's, there's always been efforts in the past to address the, the mental health crisis, but not the through integration. Integration was always like, this is a nice thing that we can throw in. This is, this is probably something we should do, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but that's not what this report says. What's really also awesome when you read through the report is that all of the work, and this is all of you out there, who have advocated for years, who've had conversations with legislators, who've had conversations with other uh, people, even at your local level, that stuff filters up. And if you read through the report, you will see that they understand the real issues, barriers, and opportunities related to actually promoting integrated care. So I'm going to just real quick, um, for example, they have a box uh, listed of the major challenges to behavioral health integration. They have eight challenges. They're all the eight challenges that all of us would list as a major challenges. Structural support for siloed care, right? Uh, stigma and mistrust, limited adoption of technology, inconsistent use of data and evidence, insufficient investment in promotion and prevention, insurance and financing limitations, workforce challenges, inequitable engagement of underserved populations. So, they're, they're on point. And I was just floored when I read this, because this is the kind of thing that, that usually I'd feel like I'd read one of these reports like, oh, yeah, you kind of got it, but you know, not really. All right. So look at that link. It's fantastic news. It really is a harbinger of, you know, what really the next decade in our health system looks like. Let's cross our fingers that we can all together uh, make it happen. That is so exciting. Uh, it makes me want to like figure out who's in there. Who's, who's got the voice that is kind of, you know, finally advancing these things that yeah. um, there's, there's gotta be a, a, mm -hmm. only a minor degree of separation from CFHA. I feel sure of it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's not a big world. So if you do yeah. connect the dots, right. I do know some of the folks that are involved at a a conversation, and I've, I'm sorry, I've, I'm horrible with names, which is what makes me bad at this kind of thing sometimes. But um, we had a conversation with someone from 
a new office developed out of HHS um, with whose goal is to promote primary care, right? Champion primary care as um, sort of a solution to the health system's sort of big issues, right? And that person was connected to a CFHA member who connected that person to me. And so then we had this conversation about, hey, these are the things we're seeing here um, in, the, in the world of integrated care and how we think we can be part of a solution to advancing primary care, right? So those sorts of relationships, so it's not one person, it's, it's a series of people, but now it's enough of those relationships have developed. And again, I want people out there listening to take some credit because this really is a collective conversation. It's, it's not just about one person, you know, kind of doing the whole thing. It's all of these conversations we've had over years, all of these efforts over years, even at the state level, if you've written a grant, if you have, um, you know, just talked to a, a health system a CEO, if you have, uh, you know, connected yourself with a local regulator, um, whatever it is, I mean, all these conversations, even the conversations we've had amongst ourselves, I mean, they're there, right? And in a way, we've created such a network of these conversations that if you Google things like integrated care or PCBH or COCM, you're going to find out, you know, find sub substantial information about these things. And so the people at the decision-making level, eventually this stuff rises to the top. So Love give it. yourselves all a pat on your back, integrated care community, because this is really about everybody. This work matters, absolutely. And the lessons awesome. that we learn from actual implementation matter so much. Oh, I have one more piece of news. Um, I want to just extend our call. We are going to feature a special segment today that is a CFHA member. Um, and it's part of our series of special segments called Voices of CFHA. So if you have an innovative idea, if you have a passion area, and you just want to share something that's really important to you about integrated care, send me an email, grace.pratt at integrisok.com. That's I-N-T-E-G-R-I-S-O-K.com. And we will get you on the schedule to record or come by me in Boise. <laughs> Anyway, let us move on now to our primary segment on our besties in integrated care, who we're collaborating with, what those close relationships are. And I want to start broadly, like we usually do, and kind of let the conversation develop in terms of what does that kind of close collaboration, what has it looked like for you so far in your career? Because we talk, I mean, collaboration is in the name. It's in everything we do. We collaborate with patients. We collaborate with teams. We collaborate with our systems. But there's some of those relationships that are just our close supporters, the people that we work best with. Um, so I wonder if you guys wouldn't mind kind of sharing a little bit about what that's been like for you. I guess I'd say I'm overcoming a professional shyness. Um, so in family medicine, finishing training, I felt like, okay, go out and do the work and be a clinician. And some of the most rewarding things I've done in the last couple of years has been stepping outside my comfort zone and, um, you know, reaching out to all of you on the podcast or, um, you know, cold called AIM Center, like, hey, we're this little clinic, we think we want to do collaborative care, you probably won't give us the time of day because we're in the middle of cornfields in the middle of America, but giving it a shot and, and just finding that sometimes you have to put yourself out there and, um, you know, make new friends. And uh, that's been a really cool, surprising um, thing for me that I didn't even know I was capable of. I'm like, all right, got to just kind of get out there and get to know everybody. And, and boy, it's been really rewarding and cool just to find um, others with shared goals and um, just so fun. Such a neat, uh, wonderful, cool chapter. Um, I guess I don't know if I'm mid-career, wherever I am, <laughs> how old I am. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's just something I've observed and really grateful for. Yeah. So it doesn't happen by accident. You have to put yourself out there. You have to reach out Agreed. for those connections. I was going to say, I think some of the, my, um, I feel very lucky because some of my connections have been just happy accidents, right? Like that have happened along the way. Um, I, I was trying to think through all the different, um, like even when I was a grad student, people that I connected with, but I think my biggest, um, like surplus of connections and and kind of like nerve center of everything that I get to do today has a lot to do with CFHA. Um, so it kind of began with not even attending like the initial conference, but signing up for the early career mentorship 
program um, and then kind of uh, joining CFHA was kind of one of those things. The other cold call, Jen, like you did, um, I called Patty. Uh, it was a it was a set the scene, right? It was a rainy night in South Texas, and <laughs> I it. called Central Washington, and uh, or it's somewhere in Washington, I guess, where they were. <laughs> and so Patty was a connector for me. And then uh, the third person uh, that kind of comes to my mind is uh, Stacy Obide. Uh, Stacy kind of joined our um, the you know sister organization at Health Science Center in San Antonio. And we just connected and she's just been so generous and gracious. So we have kind of like this monthly call where we just call and check in and, you know, trade notes of what's going on and um, all of those things. So that's another kind of professional connection. And then through Patty and that community is where I met Bridget and Dave. And we actually went up to uh, Central Washington, spent a few days there, uh, you know, took my team over there. Um, And so it's just been these accidental happy meetings that have really formed my viewpoints, uh, my clinical skills that has um, basically shaped my love for primary care. I'm glad that you kind of shared that contrast in a way, because I think both things happen. There are times that an opportunity comes your way and you open up to it and you like take a next step in collaboration. And then there's times that you're like, I got to find some people. I got to reach out. I got to see who my people are. And I think it's kind of recursive too. Like you reach out, you find some people, then some accidents happen, then you reach out and it's like this ongoing, we nurture those relationships. Yeah. I mean, it really is seven degrees of Patty and Kirk. In the integrated care world, uh, it's that's right. It's crazy that like every single person that you meet, and you I don't even have to even get close to seven degrees. It's more like well, it could be one or two, sometimes yeah, yeah. three. It's uh, you know if somebody knows Neftali, well, Kirk and Neftali worked together back in the day. If somebody knows Jeff Wright, yeah. well, Kirk and Patty, you know, uh, trained Jeff back in two thousand. Jeff Wright back in like two thousand one. You know, each person has their little connector and, and, mm-hmm. and spread. And um, like Deepu said, there's some happy accidents. Like Dave and I went to school with Stacey Oba. She was a year ahead of us, like in rural Missouri. Like what is the chances, you know, of something of something like that? Um, whereas yeah. like with Kirk and Patty, we kind of stopped their life uh, in order to be connected. Uh, so... And, uh, you know, things like that, where you like went intentionally started reading their books. I remember going to ACBS, which is like uh, for uh, third wave cognitive behavioral sciences back in, I think it was like 2014 and going to uh, Patty and Kirk's focus acceptance commitment therapy presentation and like staying afterwards and talking to them as well as the physician that was presenting with them and just like, of trying to absorb everything. No, it wasn't 2000. It was like 2010. I was like, man, my timeline's so far off. I started my postdoc in 2014. This is like 2010. But just like, you know, going to this presentation and, you know, waiting for them afterwards and just asking as many questions as possible. And then boom, now you've created a connection so that when you reach out later, you know, it's not so weird. Um, <laughs> or at least that's what I told myself. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And uh, just for the, for podcast listeners out there who are not in our circle necessarily, as a lot of people listen are not as tightly connected. So uh, Patty is Patricia Robinson and Kirk is Kirk Strassel. So if you just uh, do a web search for them or search Amazon, you'll see their books and stuff. And they were they were really early on uh, in the late mid to late nineties, um, really at the early, at the forefront of developing uh, PCBH. And the other part about the, you know, I know uh, the the networking piece of um, what Collaborative Family Healthcare Association offers, I think, is so is such a different feel than other organizations, right? Because I think uh, when I joined in 2014, I noticed that as I engaged the organization, the organization engaged me back, correct? It wasn't like, um, like it was just a little effort gives you a lot, at least in my experience. And it was just like 
from there to kind of um, all the things that we get to get involved in. I remember when Naftali um, kind of gave his opening talk and all of that as CEO. And I kind of like went up to him and said, hey, this podcast idea, I'm down for it. Just let me know. And then, (laughs) you know, a few months later, like it just kind of happened. Right. And uh, I think the other collaboration virtually, but I think many people can attest to this, is the primary care shrink videos from our own uh, Neftali, uh, because that was the only resource for a long time, right? Like if you like Googled anything related to BHC, behavioral health consultation, uh, those videos just was a collaboration, but just, you know, it was just one direction. <laughs> it was not two directional. Deepu, do you remember the first time that we met? Uh, was that... Was that at a CFHA conference? I think it was at a, it, it had to have been a CFHA conference. And Patty was just like, couldn't say enough good things about, I got this uh, guy I've been working with, blah, 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 you know, just all these really, really, <laughs> I think, who is this person? And I, I think we we're in, I don't remember exactly, I think it was like the start of a session or something. And, yes. she, like, in, and she introduced us and was like, oh, here's Deepu, or here's, you know. Yeah. Um, I, when you were talking, I just had that flash of like being was it North Carolina. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> right. That would have been yeah. 2016 then. Um, so that's cool. That's yeah. Yeah. Be, yeah. A huge plug for, uh, the feel and the fun and you never know what kind of awesome thing is going to happen at a CFHA conference. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't know about the, was it primary care shrink YouTube videos? I would totally, I didn't know those were a thing. <laughs> are they still up? Could I, can I check them out? <laughs> they're awesome. still available. So yeah, those of you yeah, who are still. So they're, they're, they're really dated right now. Um, so yeah, so I'm a little bit shy about them, but. Yeah, they, <laughs> I'm sure they're great. <laughs> they are an example of, of what you were talking about though, Jen, that sometimes you just have to, so yeah, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's you're showing up at a CFHA conference and then stuff happens. We all have stories like that. But sometimes it's just like, hey, take a little bit of a risk, you know, and put yourself out there. And the, you know, the the reason behind those videos was actually because of the lack of collaborators in my life, my professional life, and the fact that I was constantly getting emails from people saying, hey, I heard you're doing this integrated care thing. Um, you know, what, how do you do this? You know, how do you do scheduling? How do you think about documentation? How do you think about, you know, brief consult, brief consultation, things like that. And then I, I was like, you know, instead of answering these emails, I'm going to try this YouTube thing. Like at that time, it was really like, try this YouTube thing. I mean, YouTube was not as big as it is now back, uh, when I started doing this and, uh, it's amazing. It's probably one of the most important life lessons for me. It's like, I, I, it's amazing that um, just trying something like that. Uh, how much, you know, how many times people say, oh, you're the guy from the YouTube videos. <laughs> it's like been like a decade, at least since I put something out, like, you know, on that, on that channel. Um, because after a certain point, I was like, Hey, there's other great people like David and Bridget are doing a much better job than I am, you know, putting their YouTube stuff out and doing great, great work. So I don't need to do that anymore. But that initiated a lot of collaboration for me. It it formed a lot of relationships, you know, over time. And I think the other thing is I listen to you guys talk. It's really interesting is that there's different kinds of collaborations and different levels of that collaboration. So like, yes, um, you know, Kirk Strassel came out early in my time. It was probably 2001. And he came out a couple of times to the clinic that I was working at to shadow me and to help me kind of get, get things going give me a kind of a push in the right direction. But like the touch that Kirk and I had was pretty light. Like I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time with Kirk. You know, I didn't, I, you know, he wasn't like my best, my best buddy during that time. He was like barnstorming the country, uh, working for the Bureau of Primary Healthcare as a consultant. But that was what I needed at that time, right? I needed a little bit of a push in the right direction, a little bit of orientation. And then there's been other people that I can point to who have been much closer, intimate collaborators who I like can can ask questions of who I can, you know, uh, connect with. So this is, so at the 2000 and um, I think it was like 2006 CFHA conference, I think it was my first conference. And I met this woman who would change my life uh, professionally at that conference. Her name was Natalie Lefkovich. She heard me do a presentation and it was a standard early on BHC, PCVH type presentation. 
but she liked what she heard. And she's like, Hey, I want, I want you to come out and work with our clinics. Um, I've got a network of clinics that we're, we have, and, and we'd you know, love to get some coaching from you. And um, that relationship spurred a friendship and a professional relationship that opened a bunch of doors, including, I would, I would say Natalie is the main reason why I have this job today um, here. So like, that's a more intimate relationship than the one I had with Kirk, but you need people at all those levels in your life uh, to open doors, provide opportunities. And, and I'm, I'm internally grateful for all those folks in my life. I could talk about probably hundreds of them. I'm hearing us using language of opening doors and also pulling people in. Um, you know, I think there's so much about the work that we do that can be lonely and can be isolating in terms of we are working to affect system change. And we have talked at length in our podcast in the past about when we hit those barriers and when we hit those challenges and when we talk to people that don't get it and that we keep having those conversations. Or for a lot of us, we're the only one in our system or in our clinic who's like raising this charge. And that gets depleting. It gets lonely. And maybe it's just me, but sometimes I'm like, is this making a difference? Is this, you know, is this worth it? Like, am I on the right path? But it's the people around um, that do open doors, that do pull in, that say like, yes, come, let's do this thing together. Yes, your ideas are important. Yes, you're on the right track that are so powerful. Um, And I, I think too, when you were talking about sort of that different impact that people have and that different degree of connection, I think too about, you know, recognizing where we are in our career and making sure that we have collaborations and professional friends who are ahead of us, who are mentoring us, who are parallel to us, you know, who are peers that we're in the same stage with, and also people who are coming behind, who are, we are reaching out to and opening those doors and inviting to contribute because, that's like the, this bridge of this community of collaboration that takes away from the isolation and the loneliness. Well, I don't want to call our podcast partner Jen out here, but um, you know, Jen, you're a good example of of uh, just being in a space uh, yeah. pretty early in your career where, yeah, you're you're really having to champion what's happening at your in in your space, and it. I can imagine it gets pretty lonely. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm constantly like, should I be doing this, right? Should I just be a, you know, primary care provider and turn out our views? Should I spend time advocating and and pushing? And what if we thought about it this way? And um, I second guess myself all day, every day. And if it wasn't for people like you guys and CFHA, I don't know, I would have (laughs) the guts to keep saying, oh, this is valid. And that's one of the things I love about CFHA is it's welcoming to all types of pride. I guess I felt like initially I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a FP doc. Like, is this my people? Is this my community? And you guys are like, heck yeah, come on in. This is something you should be talking about. We want to know your perspective. And that was so refreshing. I think, I guess, professional training, there is such tribalism that you feel like, well, your people are the docs or the practitioners. And um, it's just so awesome to, um, you know, get to be a part of that conversation and push the ball forward and, you know, just feel like we have a a place and a voice. I'm excited for other primary care providers to keep, you know, getting more and more involved with CFHA. I stumbled upon it. I'm just so thrilled. Like, let's get the word out. This is good stuff. And there's so many of us out there that need that community. So, so, so excited to be part of that. Yeah. And the funny thing is that I think that's a big part of when, when you make collaboration a professional habit, your your tribe changes, right? So actually, Jen, you are with people whose tribe is primary care. Like, yeah, we, we, actually, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we don't fit in very well in no. our home tribes, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> okay. so, so like, we don't, we don't love hanging out with other mental health professionals, even though we are here, we're, you know, we're, we're yeah. mostly love hanging out with our primary care folks. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and just to, to validate, like, again, this is, you know, there's stages in careers, and, and I hope that this is less and less true of folks in integrated care going forward, because it's not as new, it's not as, you know, not as groundbreaking as it is. Um, although 
as we all are a testament to, but especially you, Jen, right now, you're breaking a lot of ground in your health system right now. But you know, early on in my career, I mean, I was so professionally lonely and strained by the demand, even in a pretty well-functioning organization. I, I remember acutely a time when I went out to a parking lot, uh, middle of the day out of the clinic, because I was just so exhausted and emotionally spent. And I just cried in my car by myself. I mean, I was just like sitting there crying. I was like, I just don't know if I can do this, you know, keep pushing this rock up the hill, you know, not just the, there's the clinical work and there's a strain of that, but there's also the strain of like pushing that integrated care rock, pushing this idea forward in the system, working to do what, what Deepu and Bridget have done so masterfully, which is build up a team, you know, over years and years to the point where you've reached this point of, of, uh, of greater stability, Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, you know, that doesn't, that, that doesn't happen right away. Um, you know, and I, and I think it's great that you, that we have a community now that you can connect to, but it's, yeah, it's still, there's still those times when we just feel so, so alone in the work. And yeah, I hope people hear this and are encouraged, right. And like, Hey, there's, there's a way out of that, right. Definitely. You, don't that, yep. you don't stay there forever. Yep. Absolutely. I'm encouraged. <laughs> Definitely. Hands down. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that like the loneliness and the heavy lift changes form, you know, and I don't want to you know say too much or whatever, but one of the things that we're running into is that the, the, the culture is so positive amongst the BHCs, the other parts of the medical system, like even in our own system, they look at that and they want to have that culture but it's, it, it didn't go alongside, like, because it's not like the whole organization was doing all the things. I don't know how to say it other than what Dave and I were doing. It's not, the rest of the organization wasn't doing that. So now, like years later, after that, you don't see the brick by brick by brick for the last eight years. And now we finally have more stability, more stability. And the culture is so strong for the BHCs. But medical has been through hell on earth. We've had turnovers at leadership. There's been myriad things. So it actually is this really weird contrast where like the BHCs are like, do, 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 like super yeah. hurt. And the physicians are like tearing their hair out and, you know, it's no one's fault um, per se. Um, it's, and so now I, I'm recognizing how we can't go nowhere without our physicians being in a good place. So yeah, it's great. We've got 17 BHCs. It's great we're seeing all these patients, but the patients that we're working with can't get the care they need if our physician workforce isn't stable. So now I'm in like another existential crisis. You know how you're saying like, Grace was saying like, oh gosh, you've been making a difference. And I'm like, well, what great, you know, what good is it to have folks happy and like doing this work if like the core of primary care, which is our, our entire workforce of primary care is hurt. So like, maybe I didn't do something right, you know, and it goes on and on and on another existential crisis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like you said, Neftali, yeah. all to be crying in your office alone or crying in your car or wherever you're crying. Somebody's crying and they're alone. Yeah, well said, well said. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Primary care workforce, the providers were pretty beat up <laughs> and everybody is, you know, I mean, post pandemic world, during pandemic, whatever this is, but um, it's rough, you know, and um, one of you said, I think last time that the, the wellness of the team, we, we have to be well to deliver, <laughs> you know, care for our patients. And I don't know, sometimes it feels like, where is that in our system of our providers? Well, um, that, that can get easy to, to lose sight of. Um, and it shows you feel it, but, um, I think conversations like that keep us coming back to the, all right, are we, are we well as a team? Cause that's first and foremost, right? I think at the heart of all of these conversations, I think, is the notion of uh, trusting, nurturing, psychologically safe relationships that actually can make the harder moments much more probably easier to process, right? Like, I'm thinking about Neftali in in a parking lot. I mean, my heart goes out to that moment because that happened because you care so deeply and, and, and there was no one else there to kind of like, do the same level of um, grunt work that you were putting in, right? Mm-hmm. 
And as you have a team, you kind of develop shock absorbers with your other trusted members. So when, you know, whatever hits the fan, um, things get a little bit easier to handle because you're now able to kind of lean on each other. Uh, And some of those collaborations or mentorships doesn't have to be physical, right? It doesn't have to be right next to you. It could be somebody that you reach out to like Jen did. It could be a a person from another system that can kind of give you an external perspective um, just so that you feel like you're really not a failure, you're not doing the right thing, or you're not as effective as you want to be. You know, like a lot of the times I had to be talked off the ledge a little bit because I'm getting so frustrated with our system here. And uh, one of my residents, he, he even talked about it yesterday. He's a faculty with us now. You know, and I was kind of like railing against how behind we are with our integrated care efforts. He's like, hey, we, we've just been doing this for three years. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, because that's something for me to think about. But I think at the heart of it is relationships. Relationships lead to connections and, and connections lead to buffer, right? It gives us buffer that we don't have bandwidth that we don't have access to. Yeah, 100%. And um, going back to the theme of besties, like I think of who's my collaboration bestie, it's my BHCs, you know, it's like, um, I have a, you know, clinician in my primary care clinic now, and she, um, we become friends, we become collaborators and clinicians, and we approach the patients in our office together. And I had never practiced that way, like ever, it was just you know, you're, you're, it was kind of isolating, right? You're your provider and you got your medical assistant and your receptionist and you do your thing, but it's a whole different feel when you can weave in the BHC and more you can address and, and it's, it's better for the team. Like as much as we're giving our patients and saying, Hey, we're delivering better patient care. Our team is better just because we have additional people carrying the load. It's, um, just interesting something we didn't even know we needed and here it is so it's it's been really good and we're seeing that in other offices like we have a pod it's ob gyn office and um we are never practicing without integration like hands down we needed this we didn't even know we did until she was here seeing our patients that were perinatal issues um so it's been really cool that i think organizationally it's a okay, this is so good that we're going to figure out how to keep it going. It's, it's an essential now. It's like, we're not going back. Um, integration ha- is here to stay. And that's, that's so <laughs> rewarding. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's, it's a, it's a good vibe to feel. Yeah. And I think a, another piece there that's important, it, even aside from the mutual support that we gain when we effectively collaborate with one another and align is it also creates an opportunity for consensus on things. So I think one of the reasons why I think primary care and particularly primary care providers are under such duress is because there's this culture of like, well, just put your head down and and do do your work, you know, see that yes. next patient, you know, yes. squeeze that yes. next phone call in, yep. you know, write that next script, yep. um, you know, respond to that in basket, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just put your head down and do it. Yep. And um, and so there's this sort of like solo coping mentality yes. that's part of the culture. And what I've found is, you know, like, let's say I'm in, I'm in clinic and I'm in a family medicine residency, uh, where I do the clinical work and I'm just sort of sitting there and, and as a team member, I kind of bring certain skills as a psychologist, obviously to the milieu. And I have an opportunity as residents interact with each other and as residents interact with the preceptors to like kind of point some things out, you know, so I had like an interesting conversation the other day with one of the preceptors there, you know, he got, he was precepting, but then a nurse came and said, Hey, can you, um, you know, order this mammogram for this patient? And he's like, Oh, I I don't know this patient. I don't know what's going on, you know, kind of a thing. And so he's doing that. And then, and then he gets a phone call as phone in basket. He's got to respond to and do a phone call with the patient on something else. And I just observed, I just out loud, I just said, you know, is it an interesting that you're not even in clinic right now and you've got all this other stuff that's on your plate? And you could see like his face like change in that moment. He's like, yes, like I, I don't, I don't have time for all this stuff. It's like, there's all this stuff that like keeps piling up and I'm just, you know, always feel behind on all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and then we started talking about just like simple stuff, like 
boy, you know, isn't it interesting that with EHRs now, we've kind of added all this work because now we have like in Epic, we have like my chart or other patient portals and patients can ask us questions on that portal. But we've just added a bunch of work to the primary care team through that portal, but we haven't designated who's supposed to do that work, right? Right, we've just assumed that the you know widget maker primary care providers are going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. But like when you're when you talk these things out out loud, I think you get to a place where you build consensus. Like, oh wait a second, that that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Right? Mm-hmm. And over time, I think what that can do is create consensus among the workforce that then you can actually think about enacting changes. And so, for example, I think one of the big this is another topic for a different day, but one of the big topics things that has to be um, addressed from a primary care standpoint, I think, is just this idea that over time, there's been the accumulation of responsibility placed on the work of the primary care provider outside of the office visit. Yes. All this outside of office visit work has accumulated, but there's not been an accounting for the work and the the capacity to actually complete that work, right? Documentation, phone calls, telephone encounters, you know, uh, refills, scripts, patient requests, mm-hmm. patient portal, mm-hmm. you know, you can add on to that list. So, uh, you know, so, so that's something we need to come to consensus to, but we, we, we can't do it if we're all putting our head down and just trying to just, you know, sink or swim. You know, we've got to talk about it and we've got to talk about it as, as Deepu said, in safe spaces to do that. And I think a good team does that for you because you point this stuff out that's sort of like obvious and say, oh, well, that's, that's a lot of, hmm, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Where are you going to find the time to do that, right? That's what, yeah. that's what good besties do. They just point out like obvious stuff and be like, hey, does that make a lot of sense? No, that's not good for you, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the primary care workforce gets stuck in a hopeless sense of that's just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. Your predecessors burned themselves out for their career in medicine and they they worked the 80 hours and they did call and it's just, this is what you signed up for. So quit complaining. And um, I don't know, I just feel like there should be, and there, I think there's hopefully now culture shifts of, it doesn't have to be that way. We can name the problem or the challenge and look at solutions, work smarter, not harder. It's just, I think we get, even leadership gets stuck in the okay, I realize that's an issue, but how do we solve it? Do we have time to even break apart this problem and look at the workflow steps? Do we have the staff? To, it's like everybody's just kind of treading water and keeping their head above water. So it's hard to help that health system, you know, get that provider in a better, you're not in clinic, this time is yours space. Um, I think we're all just really kind of um, in crisis mode, kind of looking at each other like, I don't know what to do. How do we fix it for each other? We're just, you know, head down, getting through the day. So <laughs> any ideas, we're all... <laughs> Come come talk us up. We'd be happy to change up the, the flow, but yeah. Well, I, th- I think one of the things we're proposing here is that collaboration is part of the yeah. onset of yep. the problem solving, right? Okay. Like Agree. It's, it has to be something where, and it's more than just like whining about things, right? Yeah. It, it's really more about aligning with one another, you know? And so, you know, like what Bridget, you were talking about your system and, you know, I think, Um, I think it's true of a lot of clinics that I've seen that the behavioral health teams are healthier than the primary care teams. I think it's one of the contributions we can make is to begin to coach those, um, the medical side of things to um, understand what it takes to form good teams that take care of one another and that are proactive about figuring out solutions to still be productive. I mean, it's not like, we're talking about decreasing, you know, productivity, or it's really uh, about prioritizing uh, the wellness of the workforce and prioritizing the us that is the care that is caring for the community. Um, so I think it's an opportunity for care teams out there to revision how they, uh, you know, problem solve this. But it does start with having these collaborative relationships, like you were talking about, Jen. That I, I know I've had relationships like that over many years with physicians. And it's, it's one of the best parts of my career, honestly. It's like when, when I'm helping, when I've helped, I know I've helped a lot, of, a lot of patients, but honestly, some of the most rewarding parts are when I feel like I'm, I've been useful and helpful to my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's, there's something very gratifying about that that mm-hmm. is probably why I do this kind of work. I know we're probably having to end here soon, but I will give a shout out to Neftali, uh, to 
with his PCBH implementer book that he uh, wrote in, I think it was 2014, you write about, uh, you know, having a project or administrative time and kind of the fact that people are going to be the same amount productive if you're doing four days or five days, but with a one day off, you know, basically work from home or wherever you want. I encourage my folks to not be in clinic if you're not in clinic. If you're in clinic, you're in clinic. And if you're not in clinic, don't be in clinic. Um, it's very confusing for everybody. And I've taken that uh, very seriously and it mirrors the work of uh, Google and other innovative businesses where they give 20, up to, in some cases, up to 20% time of free time. Um, I haven't quite gotten us to 20%, uh, but being able to get this protected time, I call it project time, that is, uh, there's a, a few small strings attached, like you have to eventually <laughs> do something, uh, but most of the time people do it anyway. So people are getting certifications, people are getting, uh, you know, their supervisory from master's level. So now they're supervising our master's folks all through their project time. Uh, we've had initiatives across the entire organization, the community, and uh, that inspiration was from Natali's uh, book. And then uh, the newest book I'm reading right now is called Drive. Uh, I think the author's last name is Pink. Uh, and it talks about that the landscape of the old for motivation of employees and tasks and how things shake out is different than what we thought. You know, it's, it's a mm -hmm. lot more, um, it, it's not just doing rote uh, things. It's doing very complex tasks and, you, tasks and you need different motivation. And so I would definitely recommend uh, Drive um, as a as a book, I got an audible. It's like a six hour read. It's not bad at all. And considering alternative ways of getting folks out of clinic to be able to use passion and project time, uh, I think that that can actually make tangible contributions. Yeah. Trust, trust, uh, trust your talent. That's what I. That's what I uh, thought of. I, I, I was, I was shocked when I saw the way that medical providers were being treated. I was like, this is your talent. These are highly talented, skilled individuals. Why are you treating them that way? Right. You want to get the best out of them, trust your talent. Trust them. Right. And if, if they don't, that's what yeah, you want. If I, if I, I always thought, I shouldn't say I always thought I learned this lesson um, the hard way by making mistakes. But, you know, I came to the realization that if someone was underperforming from a productivity standpoint, that was a, that was a me issue. Because either I'm not enabling this person effectively, or I hired the wrong person for this job. But I'm not going to force this person to be a widget maker and see a bunch of patients and, and, and make them, you know, fit. Uh, their talent will take over. Like good people do good work when you give them the freedom to do it. They just do. Man, this we had some nuggets. Nuggets. I, I, I feel like the next... Uh revolution in primary care and integrated care, et cetera, is for the larger systems and, and teams that do this work every day to really begin to understand like human-centered, people-centered environments, how to design them, how to give those competencies to leadership, um, mm -hmm. how to put uh, more meaning than Excel sheets and numbers, uh, <laughs> how to look at a productivity as a function of how much you invest in the persons that you are uh, doing this work with, right? Not a function of the number of patients that they see or the number of things that they churn out. Um, we have like in our team, we have this people first philosophy, which is like this idea that I care more about you than what you do for each other or me. And then two, we will be responsible stewards of our time, talent, and treasure, right? Like that's so and I and I don't uh I expect you know all of us to kind of do that on our own. Like I'm gonna I'm not gonna kind of micromanage you on what you do with your time. And uh, so th th that has really worked out some very painful moments in moving through that process, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. This has been such a fantastic conversation, everyone. Um, you know, from talking about the granular pieces of those close people we work with all the way to how that builds to create system change, which I think is what we're all about is those working relationships and the way that impacts the overall system. So thank you to all of our hosts. This has been fabulous. Uh, I want to shift us to our special segment. So this is part of our voices of integrated care 
ongoing series. And I sat down and chatted with Dr. Ruth Nutting about a big passion area of hers. So we are going to go to that now. Okay. Well, thank you, Ruth, for being here with me this morning. You know, this is one of our segments in a series that we're calling Voices of CFHA, just as an opportunity to highlight like all of the expertise and really interesting perspectives and point of views within our organization and how that pertains to integrated care. And so I was really glad that you were interested in coming and speaking with me. I wonder if you would start by just giving our listeners a little bit of an introduction to you and your background. Absolutely. Thank you for having me this morning. So yeah, brief backgrounds on me. It was really in my early 20s when I started to become interested and aware of the psychosocial impacts of of health and healthcare. And my trajectory is not entirely linear. So as an undergrad student, I was working full-time, going to school full-time, so not your typical undergrad student. But I'm very thankful for that experience because my full-time job was actually at an acute care hospital, and I worked in health information management. So I would see patients ED records come through consistently, and I would see that patients were coming in for symptoms of anxiety, depression, uh, and they weren't actually having the psychosocial aspects treated. They were just having a Band-Aid slapped on uh, and given, you know, some medication. So it was at that time that I was an undeclared undergrad, and at that point, I was very interested in the world of behavioral science, and I ended up getting my undergraduate degree in behavioral science and knew that I would be going on for a master's degree because I wanted to do, um, I wanted to do clinical work. I wanted to be able to treat patients holistically. I didn't yet know about the field of integrated behavioral health per se, um, but I knew the next step. So I was at the time in New Hampshire, got my master's at Antioch University in marriage and family therapy. And three weeks into that master's program, I learned specifically about the world of medical family therapy. And I was like, this this is it. This is uh, what I need to pursue so that not only can I see patients, but I can teach, I can do research, and I can, you know, mentor. Uh, so I was really excited about the opportunity, and that's what I did. I spent two years embedded in internal medicine, actually, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center doing a pre-doctoral internship as well as a postdoctoral fellowship. Then I spent five years at the University of Nebraska Medical Center uh, as director of behavioral health and clinical professor within their family med residency at Via Christi Healthcare. Uh, and that was it, was, it was great. And I decided to transition after five years into the private sector, uh, where I was director of clinical programs and really got to build curriculum to teach behavioral health providers how to do their work as part of a collaborative healthcare team. Um, and so now I recently had a, a new transition where I'm embracing entrepreneurship, and I have just founded Live Well Counseling, LLC, uh, and that name will probably be changing pretty soon as I'm also going to start embarking on consulting as well. So I'm, I'm certainly, you know, in a flux of transition and excited about what's to come. I think that's such a story that our, a lot of our listeners will resonate with in terms of it was the next step and the next step and the next step. And as you followed that interest in, you know, holistic care and in understanding the big picture of care, that that path opened up for you and led you to integrated care. Yes, absolutely. And I think too, for all listeners, especially early career listeners, it is, you know, sometimes when you think about the whole picture of what needs to get done, it can be overwhelming, uh, but it really is just taking each necessary step and trusting the process. So you have the big you know, kind of angle in mind, but you're very, it's important to remain grounded and recognize how each small step, each small choice will lead to that, that larger goal. Absolutely. Um, so over those years and through those different roles and experiences, what have developed as kind of your passion areas in this field and around integrated care? Yeah, great question. Well, first and foremost, I have to say equitable care. So as I mentioned from my very first experience as an undergrad student, patients need access to quality healthcare 
services. And we know that when we're referring patients out to community providers, you know, there's 25% or less probability that they'll actually connect with those community providers. Um, and that can be due to lack of resources and just an overall, you know, breakdown. So it's so critical to provide wraparound holistic services to patients in primary care, tertiary care settings um, that's not only patient-focused, but is also encompassing of, of the family system. And especially, you know, I, I've, I've seen firsthand as a professional, I've also seen firsthand as, um, as a person how decreased access to quality care can just significantly impact the psychological and physical well-being of, of patients. And so that is certainly um, a significant area of passion of mine. And I've also, um, you know, through this area of passion, have been very intentional um, in developing trauma-informed care programs, implementing those and evaluating those as well. Um, and then also just really recognizing the physical and psychological morbidity of chronic illness and raising amount and really bettering how we approach illness in general within the healthcare spectrum. I can see the relationships between those things and how they have developed as like related but distinct passions for you. I wonder if you would focus in a little bit more on equitable access and kind of what's the importance there and what is the work that you've been doing in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the importance is... Um, well, I mean, if you think about the quadruple aim, the, for, the importance first and foremost is in order to really improve clinical outcomes for patients, right? Um, and in order for those clinical outcomes to be improved, there has to be affordable, um, relevant access to healthcare services. Um, and so, you know, I, when I was at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, uh, I was actually able to integrate their first behavioral health program, which was great because it was increasing access to quality behavioral health services. And within that patient population, we did serve a very significant underserved population. And so making sure that we have a well-trained workforce so that patients have that access in their healthcare setting has been very, very important to me. Um, and, and similarly with my previous position uh, as director of clinical programs, we have, we have a dearth in our mental health workforce that is prepared to co-manage patients within the healthcare spectrum. And so being able to develop training curriculum, disseminate that training curriculum is very important. Um, because not all training programs have really caught up with the times. Um, they haven't necessarily caught up with integrated behavioral health. Uh, and so it's really been my passion and my journey to provide um, specific training to behavioral health providers and to increase, of course, that access to behavioral health services and do it in a very patient-centered as well as evidence-based manner. Yeah. I think that's something, you know, on the podcast that we're really passionate about in terms of the fact that it's not just the clinical work, it's not just the training, it's not just the collaboration, but all of those pieces have to be working together in concert and then linked together to ultimately it is about patient outcomes. It's about patient safety. It's about getting people the care that they need to be healthy in every aspect of the word. Um, what feel like kind of next steps for you? Yeah. Yeah. So as I mentioned, since this is a very big, um, you know, transition. So private practice, my approach to building client panel is actually reaching out to more of the smaller independent clinics who may not have an embedded behavioral health specialist and going in and doing lunch and learns with those providers, really talking to them about, you know, biopsychosocial, spiritual health care and encouraging them and inviting them to refer to my clinical services, which can be, you know, online if there's concern about patients, you know, um, having the resources to, to attend or to you know, meet in person. Um, so again, raising awareness within these smaller um, private 
clinics is, is an area that I'm focused on now. And as I embark on consulting, um, very similarly, but from a, a, a broader approach, um, training, preparing, train the trainer within these smaller clinics in order to make sure the care they're providing is um, equitable, that they're utilizing, you know, a trauma-informed care approach, that they're also aware of how their physicians are doing and providing some physician wellness uh, curriculum. So it's, I'm doing similar work. It's just going to be looking a little bit differently as, as a clinician, as an educator, um, and I'm still keeping my hand in some research. So there will be more of that to come. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for being on the podcast. If anyone wanted to get in touch with you, how could they reach you? Yes, absolutely. So I am on LinkedIn. I also, my email address is drdrruthnutting at gmail.com. So those are probably the two best avenues to contact me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Ruth, for being with us on the podcast. Um, And again, if you have a passion area or an innovative idea or something that you're doing that you think we should feature as one of our voices of integrated care, just shoot me an email and we will connect and get you on the schedule to record. As we are closing out live and in person, I'm so excited, not added after the fact, I'm going to ask Deepu to share our closing thought. All right. This is a slightly edited blessing from Reverend Becca Stevens um, on the topic of revival. But uh, Becca is the founder of Thistle Farms, where they work to heal, empower, employ, and bring economic equity to female survivors of human trafficking, prostitution, and addiction. And these are her reflections on just reviving and renewing our hearts and what we do. As we persevere in what matters to us, May our hearts be revived and renewed again and again. May we turn to the rising sun when we need to be inspired. May we turn to the wilderness when we need to be lost. May we turn toward the busyness of the world when we need to work. May we turn toward the mountain when we need to be refreshed and then turn toward the sunset when we need rest. Finally, Rooted in mercy and our common and shared humanity, may we turn toward the way of love with joy. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, co host. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next month in Boise. Mm-hmm.